Hey girls, it is Stacy coming at you live from my office, which faces out the front of my house and I have my front porch light on so I can see the ginormous snowflakes coming straight at me. They are huge. Earlier today, Michaela said that the Lord must have gotten bored with tiny snowflakes and decided that today he would do big ones. And I think I agree with her. Uh, let me make sure this is actually going. Yes, this is actually going. I would hate to sit here and talk to myself for an hour and not actually record it. That would not be any fun. Um, okay, tonight. I wish I was with you all, but obviously that is not the case. So we're going to do the best we can to go through chapters two through five on the podcast together. And we'll just kind of see how it goes. I titled this week, The Blessing of Waiting on God's Will. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of where we are headed. The Blessing of Waiting on God's Will. By way of review, last week, David and his men rescued their wives and families from the Amalekites. It was a complete victory. We talked about that. Then, after that, an Amalekite of all people came and told David that Saul was dead claiming to have killed Saul himself, but in fact, Saul took his own life at Mount Gilboa after suffering defeat from the Philistines. So David and his men, then they lament uh, for Israel, for Saul, and for Jonathan, and now it is time for something new, but what? What is it time for? So David inquires of the Lord at the beginning of chapter 2, 2 Samuel chapter 2, He says, shall I go up into one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord says, yes. And David says, where? And God says, Hebron. So David and all his men and all their families go to Hebron. If we think God doesn't care about the details of our lives, we are wrong. So just seeing that little detail this week of of the Lord telling David exactly where to go, I found that even an encouragement to me, just seeing how God was involved in these little details. And it gets even more detailed. Hebron is about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. It's about a 3,000 foot elevation, just to give you some context. So we're south of Jerusalem. And uh, based on the Genesis passages that you guys looked at in your homework, why is Hebron significant? Well, it's where Abraham sojourned. So pretty cool that this is the exact place that Abraham called home. Uh, It's also where God promised Abraham that he would give him and his offspring the land. It's also where God promised Abraham that kings would come from him. And it's also where the patriarchs were buried. So that's also pretty cool. Abraham lived around 2000 BC and David around 1000 BC. So it's approximately a thousand years later that David is now crowned king of Judah in the very spot where God initiated his covenant with Abraham. Cool stuff. Now Hebron is also a very practical choice for a few reasons. Number one, it was the largest city of refuge in the region, uh, meaning it was a city set aside for anyone who had been falsely accused of murder. And you can find that reference in Joshua 21, 13. And if we think about it, David definitely fit into that category. He had been accused of trying to murder 
um, Saul or wanting to. Obviously, we know that wasn't the case. That's just what Saul wanted people to believe. Uh, but that gives us a little clue as to the fact that there still might be a rocky road ahead for David. God just sent him to Hebron. Could there be a reason God sent him to Hebron, maybe for his own safety, uh, seeing that it is a city of refuge? Secondly, it's practical because it's a Calebite city, and David had married the widow of a Calebite, Abigail. So perhaps his acceptance then was a little easier in Hebron uh, by those men seeing as as Abigail was now his wife. Also back in 1 Samuel 30, 31, I mentioned this briefly last week, David sent gifts of war uh, from all the spoil he received from defeating the Amalekites to Hebron. That was one of the places where he sent these gifts. So that's very fitting. Thirdly, it was a city set aside as a haven for the priesthood, according to Joshua 21, 13. And remember, Abathar, the priest, has been traveling around with David. So now as we continue with the overview, which obviously we would usually do this together, uh, my big summary of chapters two through four are basically that they're just a mess. I mean, there, there is a big mess going on here. Yes, David inquires of the Lord, and God sends him to Hebron, and Hebron is a great location for all the reasons we just talked about, and we can see God's faithfulness in that uh, location, but we have a big mess on our hands. We can rejoice that, yes, David is crowned king of Judah at the beginning of chapter 12, uh, but it's it's just a messed up situation. He is not inheriting uh, a kingdom necessarily that is ready for him in any way, shape, or form. So I kind of tried to think through the best way to do this. I think, first of all, we'll just sort of mention the cast of characters. There's Abner, who has been a part of the story for us all the way since last fall. Abner is actually Saul's cousin, if you look back to 1 Samuel fourteen fifty, but he's the commander of Saul's forces. Abner then, in, in this text that we're looking at tonight, is the one who installs Ishbosheth as king in place of Saul. He is, I would say, the most powerful guy in Israel at this time. And just think back, uh, give this some context a little bit. Abner saw David defeat Goliath. So, yeah, he's been around for a while. Him and David have a history. That means when David was a commander in Saul's forces that him and Abner would have been working together. So, you know, I just want to remind us of some of that history that's there. Uh, then we have Ishbosheth, which I just mentioned. He's Saul's son. Ishbosheth is presented in these chapters as a very passive character, um, as well as really an inept ruler. His name actually means man of shame. He is said to be 40 when he starts to reign. That's in 2 Samuel 2.10 as king. So he would have been old enough to fight with his dad and his brothers on Mount Gilboa. But maybe he was exempt uh, for some reason, obviously, we don't know of. Or just to keep someone alive, just in case there was a catastrophe. Uh, and they all died, which as they did, obviously. Uh, or maybe, because I'm just 
not a big fan of him in the first place. Maybe he was just too chicken to go and fight. We don't really know. It doesn't say. Um, but Second Samuel 2.10, like I said, says that Ishbosheth only reigned for two years. And honestly, during that time, Abner seemed to be the one that was really in charge. Uh, Ishbosheth just seems like he's Abner's puppet, so to speak. Now, what's interesting about the fact that Ishbosheth only reigned for two years is that David was king in Hebron for seven and a half years before he's, uh, well, before he's king over all of Israel. So, how does that timing fit together? We don't quite know. I mean, a lot of the scholars uh, kind of lean towards the idea that there could have been about five years there where Abner was building the kingdom of Saul, where Abner was sort of trying to decide what to do um, with the kingdom. It just took time maybe to kind of move things into place. Maybe he was toying with the idea of taking the kingdom himself and then maybe realized he couldn't. Uh, And so most of the scholars placed the two years of Ishbosheth's reign at the end of David's seven and a half years as just king over Judah. So hopefully that makes sense um, when I say that. Now, let's see. Then there's Joab. Who is Joab? Well, he is actually David's nephew. He is the commander of David's forces, Abashi and Asael. I don't know how to say his name, so I'm probably going to say it a million times different ways tonight. <laughs> and just bear with me. Abashi and Asael are Joab's brothers, uh, and they're a part of David's mighty men, according to 2 Samuel 23:24. They are actually the sons of David's sister Zariah, and that's mentioned in 1 Chronicles 2:16. Uh, so that's Joab, and he's a he plays a really big part. In this tonight. So I think our key characters as we go through this are really Abner, Ishbosheth, Joab, and David. We know and love David. We're going to talk about him a little bit more later. So, what takes place in chapter two? Well, David is anointed king of Judah. And then it, in chapter two, it goes ahead and it places Ishbosheth uh, as king of Israel in verses eight through 11. But like I said, I'm not really sure that these are events are in this order, um, even though we're going to talk about them in this order. So Abner makes Ishbosheth the king of Israel. And then we have this battle of Gibeon, which is a crazy battle. It sounds like Abner uh, is is trying to strengthen um, himself against David. And what's it say? It says that, verse 13, And Joab the son of Zariah and the servants of David went out, and they meet at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool, and the other on the other side of the pool. It sounds like they're going to have a barbecue, doesn't it? And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men arise and compete before us. So the word compete, it's like they're going to play a game, and but it's a very deadly game. And Joab said, Let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, twelve for Benjamin and twelve, twelve for Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into his opponent's side. So they fell down together. Wow. I mean, it's just hard for me to even picture this. But all, 24 of them all fall down at one time. And then this big battle erupts. 
And verse 17, And the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And then it goes on to describe how uh, one of these sons of Zariah, Joab's brother, Asael, uh, went after Abner. And he, Asael is swift uh, as a gazelle. I would have loved to have seen this guy run. Sounds like he should have been in the Olympics. And uh, he's chasing Abner down. Whether Abner's on foot or horseback, I mean, I'm imagining he's got to be like on horseback or something. Otherwise, Abner's pretty fast too. But he's chasing him. Abner says, please turn aside, you know, chase someone else, go after someone else's spoil. How could I face uh, your brother if I strike you dead? Uh, but Asael refuses to turn aside. And so Abner, if you, let's see, it's verse 23. He does strike him in the stomach, but he tries to strike him with the butt of his spear so that the, the you know, it's not the sharp end, it's actually the blunt end. So maybe he wasn't actually trying to kill him, but Asael must have been moving so fast that the spear went all the way through him and out his back, the butt end of the spear. I mean, this these are crazy stories. <laughs> What's going on here? <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, um... Of course, this makes Joab and Abashi very upset, and they pursue Abner. The sun is going down. Um, Abner's lost a lot of men, but the people of Benjamin, remember that Saul was a Benjaminite, so the people of Benjamin rally behind Abner, and then Abner's really the one that says, hey, Joab, we should call this off. I mean, this is not going to end good, and actually Joab listens to him. So that is, then they all go home. That is chapter two. Now, chapter three is interesting too. Verse six says, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. So that's kind of an overview verse. Like I said, maybe that was happening in the first five years of David's reign from Hebron. Um, not really sure how this all pieces together. But then we jump to verse 7, which says that Saul had a concubine named Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah, and Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone to my father's concubine? So he accuses him of actually trying to take the kingdom. So anytime you would come in, which we're going to see this happen with David's son just in a few short chapters, but uh, when you would sleep with the king's concubine, you're just trying to overthrow him. You're trying to take the throne. So that is really what Ishbosheth is worried about here. But what's interesting is he charges Abner with this sexual scandal. If it wasn't true, then it actually suggests that he possessed the same tendency to misperceive reality as his father did. I mean, Saul was always misperceiving reality, right? So like Saul, Ishbosheth falsely, maybe, perhaps, we don't know, accused his most loyal and capable soldier of treason. Just like Saul accused David, his most loyal and capable soldier of treason. I thought that was a really interesting parallel happening in this story. Like father, like son. Now the text doesn't tell us if that was actually true. It just um, is just letting us know that this is what causes Abner to go to the other side. So Abner then decides that he is actually going to help David now. He gets mad at Ishbosheth, and he's going to help David take the throne. Uh, let's see. Let's go to three nine, and Abner actually says to him, 
God do so to Abner and more also. If I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. So he now says, he actually swears now to Ishbosheth, I am going to make this happen, and it will be all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, that uh, I give the kingdom over to David. Now, Ishbosheth in verse 11 could not answer him because he feared him. Yes, I could see why, honestly. Then Abner goes on to um, gain the support of the rest of Israel. He talks to the elders and he tell, he sends a messenger to David to let him know, hey, I'm going to bring you the kingdom. And David says in verse 13, good, I will make a covenant with you. But I think maybe to make sure uh, this was an honest and real thing, he says, one thing I require of you is that you bring me my wife, Michael's son's daughter. So they do. Uh, they bring Michael to him. And let's see, uh, then Abner actually goes and meets with David. And it sounds like they have a feast. Things go just fine. Um, Abner is now going to uh, hand the kingdom over to David. I mean, if you're David at this point, you must be pretty excited because this is what you have dreamed of. And you must be thinking to yourself, it's happening. Like, God is finally making it happen. And you're rejoicing at this feast with Abner, possibly, I don't know. Um, but then when Joab gets back from a raid and realizes that Abner had been there, he is sure that uh, it's all a big setup and that Abner was just there to spy on him. But really, I think Joab just wants revenge for his brother's death. So he calls uh, Abner back without David knowing it, and then he murders him and his brother, murder Abner. Then David mourns Abner's death. It's, it's just crazy, guys. It just goes on and on, it seems like. So just if you're David, though, and all of a sudden now Abner's dead, whew, what a back and forth, right? I mean, here you must be thinking, God is finally giving me the kingdom. And then the next thing you know, the guy who was going to make it happen is dead. And now you don't know what's going to happen. Like, are the Israelites going to go for it? Are the elders actually kind of come around to the idea? David has no idea at this point. But he mourns for Abner's death. And he also makes Joab and his brother mourn for Abner's death as well. Why was that important? Well, verse 36 of chapter 3, the people took notice of David's mourning. And it says it pleased them. So it really what it does is it proves David was not part of this murderous scheme. It proves once again his innocence and uh, the people are pleased with that. So then, then I found verse 39 interesting there. It says, and I was, David is speaking and he says, and I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zariah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. I just thought it was interesting that David said he was gentle. I was gentle today, though I am anointed king. He had the power to do whatever he wanted, and, and David refers to himself as gentle. Now, chapter 4, then. We're still going. What takes place in chapter 4? Well, Ishbosheth is now murdered, also by two brothers from Saul's own tribe. Again, he's stabbed in the stomach, just like Asael and Abner. Isn't that interesting that in each one of these chapters, two, three, and four, each time we have someone being stabbed in the stomach. It's just 
It's nuts. Only, only, I don't know. Only history could do this, right? Um, so he, he Ishbosheth is murdered. These two brothers think that uh, David is going to be happy with them. Seems like we've seen this before. And so they bring Ishbosheth's head to David. And what is David's reaction? He has them killed. He is not happy uh, with them at all. Let's look at verse 8 of chapter 4. Let me find it. Let's see. He says, it says, They took his head and went by the way of Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered these brothers. I'm not going to say their names. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. I just like the way David put that. Uh, he, he's giving God the credit even here. It, he's telling them, it's not you guys who's going to give me the kingdom. It will be the Lord that gives me the kingdom. He is the one who delivers me out of every single adversity. I just love how in every circumstance, David takes it right back to the Lord. Now in chapter 5 then, David is finally anointed king over all Israel. And he establishes his kingdom actually in Jerusalem. So far, the kingdom... Uh, that has not been uh, that has not been the capital per se uh, yet, uh, but this is the point at which the capital moves to Jerusalem. The Jebusites are no match for God's anointed, and uh, then in the second half of chapter five, David actually fights against the Philistines twice. My favorite part of chapter five, it's probably yours too, comes right at the very end when he fights the Philistines for the second time, and. The first time, the Lord tells him uh, what to do. And then the second time, David's like, should I just go and do the same thing I did last time? And when David inquired of the Lord, verse 23, he said, and the Lord said, you shall not go up. Go around to their rear. Well, it's a good thing David asked, huh? Because God told him to do something different. And come up against them opposite the balsam trees. And then the Lord says, And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. That is so cool. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, that is the army of the Lord. You guys, we are not alone. We are not alone. There is a world that we cannot see, but the Lord is on the throne and he is the commander of the greatest army ever. His army, the Lord's army, okay? So I want you to hold on to that little bit of encouragement because I found that just really encouraging as well. Uh, now, when David takes Jerusalem, he goes in, I believe it's like through a water shaft is actually how he gets in. And uh, there's some interesting verses that David says something about the, the blind and the lame, but it's just a pun on words. Uh, the Jebusites are saying, well, even the blind and the lame can ward him off. You know, David's not a threat. There's no way he can get in. And so David's comments about the blind and the lame are not derogatory in any way. So I did want to point that out. He's basically just kind of giving a pun back to them. So he has no problem. The Lord gives him Jerusalem. Verse 12 in chapter 5 says, And David knew that the Lord had established 
him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. Pretty cool. David is now king over Israel. I'm going to take a quick drink of water. Now, what an overview, right? If your head is spinning a little bit, you are not alone, all right? What do we do with all of this? I mean, I'll be honest, these have not been my favorite chapters to study. It, it has been hard to pull application out of this. I, but I think we do what we're supposed to do, whether life is going great or completely falling apart or crazy or hard to understand, whatever it is, we're supposed to bring our focus back to the Lord. And I think that's what we do here and now. Believe it or not, we're going to establish three things about God's will based on these chapters. Where is God in these chapters? Well, he's where he's always been, right? He's on his throne this entire time. No matter how crazy things get, God is still on his throne. He's still in charge and he is still faithful. Psalm 33:11 says, "The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations." I want us to clue in on that all generations part. He is still faithful today because he says all generations. Now, 2 Samuel 2 through 4 does not necessarily present to us an ideal world in any way or even a perfect world. I love that about scripture. It presents us with a very real world. There's murder. There's sexual accusation. There's selfish ambition. There's political upheaval. There's um, power-hungry men serving only themselves instead of their nation. There's disunity. There's plans that just go totally wrong. But honestly, that is some really good news for us. Since that list really still describes the reality that we're living in today. Those in authority today are still power-hungry. Disunity is absolutely still a part of our society Sin is still very prevalent. Selfish ambition is still something even we fight against. Murder is the first thing you see when you turn the news on. And it seems like we can't even go a week without hearing about some new alleged sexual scandal, right? So it really, in a lot of ways, just sounds like it's describing what's going on today. This could have fit in our world today, these chapters. And yet, in the midst of everything going on here... God is still accomplishing his will. That's what I want to point out. David still became king. You guys, no matter how bad things get in our world today, God is still accomplishing his will. Nothing is messy to God. I want to turn to Psalm 2, verses 1 through 6, because I think it just really fits perfectly. Psalm 2, 1 says this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But then listen to verse 4. It says this, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
It doesn't matter what kind of schemes people come up with today or what kind of schemes they came up with back then, what took place, what was in the thoughts of men. God was still going to accomplish his will. And his will was to set his king on Zion, his holy hill. And guys, that's going to happen again. He will accomplish that again in Jesus Christ. He will set his king on Zion, my holy hill, verse 6. So our first principle tonight is this. God is faithful to accomplish his will. It's that simple. God is faithful to accomplish his will, no matter what. No matter what is happening. No matter what kind of schemes men come up with. No matter how much they set themselves up against God, they can do nothing. And God is on his throne and he just laughs at them. You can do nothing against me, he says. Right? Because he is faithful, he is powerful, he is sovereign, and he will accomplish his will. Now, when we talk about God's will, I want to make a couple distinctions here. We can talk about it within a couple different categories. The first one is this, God's sovereign will. Okay, um, it can also be called God's hidden will or God's directive will. But this is what we're talking about here right now as, as I'm, I've been talking about God just ordering events even through the chaos. This is God's sovereign will. God's purpose stands no matter what humanity does because God is sovereign. I love Daniel 4, 34 and 35. Uh, It's actually Nebuchadnezzar who says these words. And he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High. Listen to what he says about him. I praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him what have you done none can stay his hand you guys god does according to his will this is god's sovereign will he does according to his purposes now within god's sovereign will he does permit things to take place that he takes no pleasure in But somehow he can still make even those things fit into his purposes. So just because something happens, I'm not going to say it was God's sovereign will that it happened. But within that, he allows things to happen that he can still use, like bad things, things he doesn't take pleasure in. He can still use those for his purpose. Now, the second part of God's will is God's revealed will or his moral will. These include the desires and commands of God that he's revealed to us through his word. We know we're to love him with all of our hearts. That is God's revealed will. We know we're not to murder or lie or steal or envy or commit adultery or other sexual sins. We know we're to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. You know, there's a lot of things in scripture that have been revealed to us. You specifically looked up some passages in your homework 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8, um, John 15, Ephesians 5. So some of the things you probably wrote down as far as God's revealed will uh, is for us to be imitators of God, for us to be sanctified, holy, for us to give thanks, for us to bear fruits. These are God's revealed will to us. 
And because these things have been revealed to us, we are obligated to obey them. However, we have the ability to disobey them also. And unfortunately, that's been humanity's pattern since Adam and Eve chose to disobey God's revealed will all the way back at the beginning when they ate from the tree God told them not to eat from. Now in 2 Samuel 2, 3, and 4, we see both the outworking of God's sovereign will and his revealed will. We see God's sovereign will displayed as David continues to increase in power no matter what happens. No matter what scheme come against him, no matter what Abner does, David still continues to increase in power. That is God's sovereign will for David. We also see uh, his sovereign will in the location of Hebron. The fact that Hebron was where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sojourned, and now it's the place of David's initial crowning, that just screams at me that God is sovereign over all circumstances. He is making these things happen. But we're also at the same time seeing the outworking of God's revealed will disobeyed. All right, we're seeing his revealed will disobeyed. I mean that in the sense of all these crazy mixed up things that are happening in these chapters are really the disobedience of God's revealed will, right? I mean, murdering people, um, not uh, giving their allegiance to the Lord. But particularly, we see this in Abner. It floored me to read in 2 Samuel 3, 9, when Abner was talking to Ishbosheth, that he knew, he knew it was God's will that David be king. And yet he's been doing everything in his power not to let that happen. That floored me when I read that. He knew it. And then he says the same thing to the elders of Israel. He knows that it's God's will that David be king of Israel, and yet he has been fighting against it. It's interesting to think that Abner would have heard Saul acknowledge David's claim to the throne in uh, 1 Samuel 24, 20 and 26, 25. I mean, Abner was, was in on everything going on with Saul. He would have heard Saul say those things to David through their exchanges when they were talking across the mountains, when David had opportunities to kill Saul. And so honestly, it's just hard for me to understand Abner's thinking here. If you know something is God's will, how can you be so prideful as to fight against it? That's what gets me. Not to mention, how can you be so naive as to think you can actually stop it from happening, right? You guys, it does us no good to fight against God's will. If you know something is God's will and you have been trying to do something that's the complete opposite, I want to urge you tonight to stop. Get on the same page with the Lord it does us absolutely no good to fight against God's revealed will for us. Now, his sovereign will, we don't always know what his sovereign will is. And that's where we just have to stay close to him. And that's where we have to cling to him and continue asking him, just like David did at the beginning of chapter 2. Should I go up into one of the towns of Judah? Yes, you should, said the Lord. And where should I go? To Hebron. At that point, David knew where to go, but he had to ask because he didn't know God's sovereign will, right? But God's revealed 
will, we have a responsibility to it, and it does us no good to fight against it, okay? Now it is my personal desire, and, and I trust it is yours as well, to obey the Lord. Um, I, you know, I, I see that in you guys. That's why you come to Bible study, right? We want to obey the Lord because we understand, we, we do, we understand that God's will is good for us, right? We know his will is what's best, his revealed will especially. Um, his will is good and pleasing and perfect according to Romans 12, 2. Even David, and I love this, David delighted in doing God's will and following God's law. David sang in Psalm 48, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. He delighted in it. I delight to do your will. And you know, I think that's one of the reasons why David is called a man after God's own heart, because he truly desired to do God's will. He desired God's heart. He didn't carry it out perfectly, but he did desire it. So here's our second principle tonight about God's will. God's will is good and desirable. God's will is good and desirable. I'm going to take a drink. Now, I think it's important to say here that both God's revealed will and his sovereign will are good and desirable. We want God's will, or at least we should, right? It is what's best for us. It's what's best for our nation. It's what's best for the church, God's people. This is again why when the disciples asked Jesus how to pray, Jesus told them to pray, Thy kingdom come and thy will be done, because God's will is best. That doesn't mean God's will is easy, It was God's will that Jesus suffer and die on the cross, right? And there is no way that was easy. But it was good because it accomplished God's purpose, defeated death, and opened the way of salvation. So God's will for your life may not be easy. I don't think it was easy for David by any means. But we can trust that God's will is good because God is good. That's what we have to go back to. We can trust that God's will is good because God is good, which actually leads us straight into our third principle tonight. And then we're going to break this third one down. But the third principle is this. It's worth waiting for God's will. It's worth waiting for God's will. If God's will is good, then it's worth waiting for God's will. So we've established tonight that God is faithful to accomplish his will. We've established that God's will is good and desirable. And now we're saying the premise that it is worth waiting for God's will. We haven't talked a whole lot about David yet tonight. David does show some flaws in these chapters, uh, like the... Like other kings, David is developing his dynasty with the addition of many wives, uh, forbearing many sons, 
In chapter 3, 2 through 5, it records that he had six sons from six different wives while he was at Hebron. And then in chapter 5, verse 13, it tells us that once he became king in Jerusalem, he took on more wives and concubines. Really what this is doing is just setting us up for future chapters. Uh, Bad times are to come for David's family. Uh, it's, you know, you guys know, I'm sure you know the story, but it's really going to fall apart. But the very first thing we see David do in these chapters is seek the Lord, right? His heart is for the Lord. And that's the very first thing we see. David's desire is for God's will to be done. And so we ask God what he should do, right? We've said this several times, go to Hebron, says the Lord. I just want to note in these chapters that David never asserts his own will as far as him becoming king is concerned, right? Instead, he waits and waits for God to make him king. I'm sure this is not how David imagined things going, especially when All the way back at his father's house, Samuel came and anointed him. I'm sure at that point he had a completely different picture in his head of how this was going to go and as as to how God might give him the kingdom. God never told him, okay, David, first I'm going to have Saul chase you around and try and kill you. Then I'm going to make you king of Judah. And then you're going to wait seven and a half more years before you actually get crowned king of Israel. Does that sound good to you? God never said that. David didn't know how all these things were going to turn out. And in reality, David had multiple opportunities to speed up the process, right? He could have killed Saul twice, at least twice, right? We know of twice, but I wonder if there was more times. He could have paraded through the streets of Israel with Saul's crown upon his head after the Amalekite brought it to him. He could have celebrated after Abner was murdered. And he could have moved right into the position of victory, but he didn't. Over and over, David waited on the Lord. And eventually, God brought all of Israel to David. And I have a feeling that day was much, much sweeter because David waited on the Lord. 1 Chronicles 12, 23-40 actually goes through... I think I have it marked in my Bible, um, what that day looked like in a little bit more detail. So I'm going to read some of that for you. And I'm talking about the day that, that Israel came, chapter 5, and actually decided, the elders actually decided to crown David king of Israel, the moment that he had been waiting for. First uh, Chronicles 12, 23 says this, These are the numbers of the divisions of the armed troops, who came to David in Hebron to turn the kingdom of Saul over to him, according to the word of the Lord. You guys, there's so, so many people came that day. Verse 24, the men of Judah bearing shield and spear were 6,800 armed troops. Of the Simeonites, 7,100. Of the Levites, 4,600. Uh, the Prince Jehoiada of the house of Aaron, 3,700. Zadok, a young man mighty in valor, and 22 commanders from his own father's house. Of the Benjaminites, uh, the kinsmen of Saul, 3,000, of whom the majority had 
to that point kept their allegiance to the house of Saul. So now 3,000 of them who had kept their allegiance to Saul come. Of the Ephraimites, 20,800 mighty men of valor came that day. Of the half-tribe of Manasseh, 18,000 who were expressly named to come and make David king. Of Issachar, uh, let's see, 200 chiefs and all their kinsmen under their command. Of Zebulon, 50,000 seasoned troops came equipped for battle with all the weapons of war to help David with singleness of purpose. That's verse 33 of First Chronicles 12. Of Naphtali, 1,000 commanders with whom were 37,000 men. Can you imagine David seeing all of these men come to him at Hebron to make him king? Of the Danites, 28,600 men. Of Asher, 40,000 seasoned troops ready for battle. Of the Reubenites and Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh from beyond the Jordan, 120,000 men armed with all the weapons of war. Verse 38 says this, All these men of war arrayed in battle order came to Hebron with a whole heart to make David king over all Israel. Likewise, all the rest of Israel were of a single mind to make David king. And they were there with David for three days, eating and drinking, for their brothers had made preparation for them. They were partying. Verse 40, And also their relatives from as far as Issachar and Zebulon and Naphtali came bringing food on donkeys and on camels and on mules and on oxen, abundant provisions of flour, cakes of figs, clusters of raisins and wine and oil, oxen and sheep, for there was joy in Israel. How cool is that, right? All of these troops coming, this is thousands and thousands and thousands of troops coming to David at Hebron to make him king. What a moment for David. All because he waited, you guys. He waited on God to make it happen. He didn't try and force God's hand. He didn't try and force the door open sooner than it should have been opened. He waited on the Lord. I'm going to go back to 2 Samuel 5, 12, which says, And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. David knew the Lord had done it. Why? Because he waited. He waited on the Lord and that is why he knew. Do you know what waiting on the Lord does? It gives us confidence. It strengthens our faith because we get the opportunity to see God work And then we know this is God. We can know without a doubt when we wait on God's will, his sovereign will to take place, we can have the confidence it's the Lord who did this. It's the Lord who got me here. It's the Lord who opened this door. It's the Lord that made this possible. But the problem is we're not good at waiting, are we? I don't like waiting I don't like waiting in line at the grocery store. I don't like waiting at the Meyer Deli counter. I don't like waiting on stoplights. I don't like waiting. But do you know what? 
Life is about the waiting. It really is. Which means life's about what we do during the waiting and how we react while we have to wait. In your homework, I had you brainstorm instances in scripture where people didn't wait on the Lord and it got them in trouble. So I wish we were together so I could think of your examples, but I thought of a couple for you. So there is Abraham with Ishmael. Abraham got a a little bit in a rush. So did Sarah and um, Hagar ended up having Ishmael. Then there's Rebecca and Jacob with the birthright, right? Uh, Jacob, God had promised that the younger, the older would serve the, the younger. Did I say that right? The older, yeah, the older would serve the younger. They had that promise. And yet Rebecca got ahead of God and Jacob also when they tricked Isaac into giving Jacob the birthright instead of Esau. They should have just waited on the Lord. The story I'm sure would have been much sweeter. God is going to fulfill his will, right? We've already established that. And it's a good will and it's a will worth waiting for. I also thought of Moses when he killed the Egyptian. Moses knew that God was going to use him to free uh, free the Israelites. He knew it. Somehow it had been revealed to him. I actually think it says that in Acts. I need to find that reference for you. Uh, but he got ahead of God when he killed the Egyptian. And then he fled. And then the Lord had him wait another 40 years, right? 40 years. You guys, waiting, I know, is no small thing. Some of you have been waiting on certain things to happen and circumstances and you've been waiting on God to work and waiting on God to move for a long time and you've been praying and you've been asking. Waiting can seem so endless sometimes, even cruel, but waiting is something that really we see over and over and over again in scripture. Noah, let's just think about Noah for a minute. He waited a long time for it to actually rain, right? And then it rained for 40 days and nights. Then he waited 10 months for the earth to dry out. Once the earth actually dried out, he waited another 57 days for God to actually open the door. There's some an, an interesting uh, parallel for us right there, right? Sometimes we just want to bust the door right open, certain circumstances. Well, I wonder how many times Noah thought about busting the door open. Maybe he couldn't. Maybe it wouldn't have been a possibility. But there was uh, him and his sons and, and obviously his wife were in there. And I just wonder how many of them were tempted to bust the door open while they waited another 57 days for God to do it. We are not good at waiting for God to open the door. But we need to be because God's will is good, right? That's what's best for us. Uh, We already talked about Abraham. Uh, Just think about Joseph a little bit too. God gave Joseph a dream that he knew would come true. But then he made Joseph wait, didn't he? And he made him wait in jail. He made him be a servant. I mean, tough things happen while Joseph waited. Guys, think about, let's think about Israel for a minute. God promised Israel a Messiah, right? But then God made them wait until the time was just right. If you look at Hebrews 11, after listing so many faithful saints of old from the Old Testament, 
Verse 13 says this, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. You guys, all those Old Testament saints listed in Hebrews 11, they're all still waiting. They are still waiting for God to fulfill what he has promised them. And we're still waiting too. Romans 8.23 says, As believers, we're waiting eagerly for adoption as sons, right? The redemption of our bodies. We can't wait for that. Daily, we continue waiting for our blessed hope. Titus 2.13, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Revelation 6.10 says those who have been martyred for their faith, they're waiting for God to avenge their blood. Romans 8.19 says even creation is waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For until then, creation continues in bondage to corruption. You guys, the Christian life is really all about waiting. Waiting on God to fulfill his promises. Waiting on God to accomplish his purposes. And yet Satan likes to make us think sometimes that we're the only one waiting for something. He wants us to think we're alone. But I want you to know right now, tonight, or today, whenever you listen to this, you are not alone. I am sure you are waiting for something. You guys, we're all waiting. The Christian life is all about waiting, okay? But there can be blessing in the waiting. Did you catch that in your homework? Question five on your homework, according to Isaiah 40, 31 and Lamentations 3, 25, there are some benefits to waiting, right? Isaiah 40, 31, there is strength. When we wait on the Lord, those who wait will be strengthened. They'll be renewed. They shall run and not be weary. How can we be strengthened? We talked about this last week. When we remember, we surrender, and we worship during the waiting, we can find strength in the Lord. I also love Isaiah thirty eighteen. It says this, For the Lord is a God of justice, Blessed are all those who wait for him. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Blessed. I want to be blessed by the Lord. I skipped Lamentations 3.25. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. God is good to those who wait by faith for him to act for his sovereign will. Psalm 25.3 says, Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. You guys, the reward is really in the waiting because God is with us as we wait. And the wait is where we get to experience him. And when we see God's will worked out in front of us, just like David got to see, that's when we get to have confidence and our faith just explodes because we know God did this. He is my Lord and my Savior, and he did this. You know, it's in the waiting that we have the best opportunity to draw near to God. It's in the waiting we come to know his strength and not our own as we learn to trust him and cling to him and pray and remember and surrender and worship. 
It's in the waiting. We get to watch him work on our behalf, in us, through us, around us. There is so much blessing in store for a heart and a mind that waits steadfast on God. We see that here with David. That was really my favorite part of these chapters, was just seeing how even in the mess of life, David trusted God and he waited on God's sovereign will to be done. He didn't try and rush things. He didn't try and get ahead of God. He didn't get impatient. He waited no matter how hard it was. So as tempting as it is to wish away the waiting, whatever it is you might be waiting for today, or as tempting as it is to rush the waiting or to loathe the waiting, we need to rest in the waiting and trust God, knowing there is a purpose and a blessing even in the waiting, no matter what it is we might be waiting for. So girls, don't give up and don't give in. Don't get ahead of God, all right? There is blessing in the waiting. We have to go back to the fact that God is faithful to accomplish his will, right? And God's will is good and desirable. And therefore, it is worth waiting for God's will. I'll leave you with a couple verses and we're done. Psalm 27, 14, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. I love that verse. I go back to that verse all the time when I'm feeling impatient. That's Psalm 27, 14. The other one is Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And that, my friend, is why we can have confidence as we wait. Because God will accomplish his will. His good and perfect and pleasing will. A will that is always worth waiting for. All right, girls. I love you all. That is our study for tonight. I'm going to pray for us. And then I will send you questions on your homework for um, next week. And hopefully we'll be back together then. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. I just pray for each of the women, even though we're apart tonight, that you, uh, you would just walk with them, Lord, that you would talk with them, that you would fill them, that you would encourage them as they wait. I pray they would trust you. I pray they would find their strength in you, Lord, that they would not get ahead of you, but they would know that your will is good, your will is desirable, and your will is worth waiting for. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'll see you guys later.